bring us through uh, whatever it is that we are facing for our good. And we know and we have this extreme confidence that no matter how bad the crushing and the pressing feels, uh, that you're going to bring us through because uh, we'll have, uh, we have you and we can have confidence in what your word tells us. So Father, uh, my prayer for the congregation, uh, for your kingdom for this year is that uh, we are new. We are new vessels, we have new offerings because we have allowed you, we have allowed you to crush us and press us because we know uh, that what comes out of that is new and it is better and it is stronger and it is sweeter and it is more powerful for you and for your kingdom. Lest we ever forget that anything we're gonna do on our own is for our own glory, God, it is all for you. And so this year we ask to be new vessels to bring greater glory for your kingdom that is here on earth. Father, we ask uh, all of us join together uh, and ask you to give Pastor Joe courage and conviction today. Give him your words. Help them to light a new fire within us as we head into this new year. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. No, it's not on. Not yet. Not yet. Keep talking. Testing. There we go. All right. Happy four-day-old year five-day-old year, however it is. All right, hey, one of the reasons that, uh, that our worship team is so good, I mean, obviously they're good musicians, but it's really the vulnerability and the openness that brings you in and helps you understand the heart behind the worship, and we're very thankful for that. Um, it's a great song, and um, I appreciated it. You know, it's, it's strange. The last three years, this is interesting, it has not been planned but this is, this is our second or third New Year's. I, I think it's our third. It's our third New Year's. Every year on New Year's, it seems like we start a new series. It's not planned that way. It's just all, it happens to work out. So uh, I'm starting Second John today. Uh, it's a very short book. It's a very under-preached book. Many people, uh, I've seen you know, other people preach it, but they don't even preach the whole thing. I don't know why. It's only like 15 verses. It'd be pretty easy to preach the whole thing. Some would just do it in one week. But of course, you know, that's not my style. So this is a 15-verse book, and we'll be doing this for the next 22 weeks here. At Gr- <laughs> We're doing half a verse each week. No. I've titled the series Just a Personal Note. There'll be three or four parts to this, but today is part one, Just a Personal Note. That's all Second John really is. I was talking to Daryl uh, last week about this series, and we were talking about some of the interpretations of some of the things in it. He goes, you know... A long time ago, I thought to myself, well, it could be this and it could be that. But then I thought to myself when I was about 30, I said, ah, who cares? It's just Second John. And that's frankly kind of the way a lot of people look at this because it's such a small book sandwiched in the back of the Bible there. But it's an important book, especially when you look at it in the historical context of what we just studied in First John. So let me talk a little bit about where we're going to go with this in the next few weeks. Can you recall... A time when someone gave you a personal note of affirmation and encouragement. Maybe it was when you needed it most. Maybe it was before you needed it, but when you got it, you realized, well, this is cool. And you saved it. And later on, it meant a lot. That moment, perhaps, where they single you out in their life or maybe in a crowd to let you know that you're important, that you're special, and that you're needed. And usually when that happens, right, it can be awkward, 
uncomfortable because it kind of maybe will leave us speechless and we don't know why they're doing it and it kind of takes us by surprise, but undeniably, it can have an impact for good. But see, there is such value in personal encouragement and affirmation. It can literally, think about it, a well-timed, well-said word of affirmation and encouragement can literally change the direction and course of someone's life. Unlike Christmas cards, we actually save these for years. Oh, come on, like y'all don't throw away the Christmas cards, come on. Is it just me? Am I in trouble now? Sorry. But it can't be just fluff. Hey, I want to encourage you. Hey, you're doing a great job. No, it's got to be more than that. It has to be principled affirmation based upon facts and evidence. It has to mean something. It has to have depth. It has to have conviction. It has to have a reason behind it. This is the nature of this personal note that John the Elder writes in 2 John. It was a personal note from a beloved apostle that everybody knew to a person that he believed needed principled affirmation and encouragement during a difficult time. So let's read the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, 2 John verses 1 through 4. The elder, talking about John himself, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. That's all we're going to look at today, those four verses. So like we do at Grace Life, we like to look at each passage from three perspectives. The historical, what about man, what's going on with him, why and how did he do things and all that. And then we look at the, the spiritual, what about God, what is he trying to teach us. And then the personal or devotional, <clears throat> what about me. So let's talk about the historical. It's a special, a special lady. While this book is neglected because it seems so small, Understanding the historical context of 1 John makes this book, to me, frankly, quite fascinating when you take it as a broader narrative of what is actually going on in the region. 2 John is written either just after or at the same time as 1 John. Perhaps it was simply attached to 1 John as it was sent out and as copies were sent out to the different churches, maybe this was a kind of an attachment to go to one of the churches where this special elect lady was. <clears throat> now, there are two interpretations of this elect lady that are out there that are pretty popular and among people who preach. The first one is that she is a symbol of the wider universal church. I'm writing this to the elect lady, in other words, the bride of Christ. The idea that this is not a specific person, but more likely it is just him using allegory to point to a larger perspective of all believers. Of course, at the end of this, that's kind of throwing out the water when he talks about her nieces and nephews also following Jesus. Here's the second version, which is it's a specific individual, which I, as your pastor, hold to. It's a specific lady in Asia Minor, in the region that John the Elder is over. Remember, John had taken over for Paul now that Paul is dead. And between the mention of her children and her sister and her nieces and nephews at the end, it's very clear to me that John writes this to a specific person who was evidently very influential 
in the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> she was elect. He calls her elect, which simply means God had chosen her and God had saved her. And there was ample evidence in her life of transformation, godliness, and faithfulness. And there was clearly a very close friendship, or at the very least, <clears throat> excuse me, a working relationship between John the Elder and this elect lady, as he calls her. In other words, chosen lady. That's what the word elect means. It is, frankly, the best explanation for why he wrote this personal letter to this obviously well-known, apparently very important woman. He deemed her important enough that he specifically warns her about the Gnostics. We've talked about them for a long time here in uh, 1 John. The Gnostic false teachers and all their schemes to intimidate, to deceive. <clears throat> the fact that it's written to a woman is also quite interesting. It gives us insight into what the role of women was in the first century church as well. So why didn't he mention her by name? Why wouldn't John just say, hey, to the elect lady named you know, Priscilla or Martha or Diane? There's some good reason for that. First of all, understand that the spiritual and secular culture currently at that moment is very poisonous. It's very hostile. It's a situation where especially high-profile leaders in the church are targets. People actually had to remain anonymous because of extreme political and even spiritual polarization just to protect their families. He most likely left her name out of this for safety to minimize the chances of making her a target of Gnostic persecution. <clears throat> and based upon the historical context that we learned about in 1 John, I believe John feared this woman would be a prime target of the Gnostics and the garbage that they were peddling and plaguing the churches in Asia Minor with. More on this later on as we talk about it in the spiritual section. But basically, the elder John, the apostle John is a shepherd. He loves his flock. He knows what's going on. And he sought to proactively protect and warn this special, important lady. And his personal note, as we'll go through over the next few weeks, his personal note is full of principled affirmation of her faith, her character, and legacy. It's not just a bunch of theological warnings. He talks about who she is, the impact she's having, and why she needs to be wary of those coming to destroy her. So that's the historical aspect of what's going on with this and why I believe it's a specific woman. Look at the spiritual side. I want to talk about what God is doing and what God is teaching. There are harmful influences in the region. So here is a picture <coughs> of the region. And you can see these are actually the seven churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. And you see all these churches. Here's where he is writing 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. These are the churches he's dealing with. And so this lady, this elect lady, is, is an influential person in one or several of these churches. We don't know who she is or what she does, but clearly she's important. <coughs> They're the same churches he writes that are dealing with this Gnostic theology. What they taught, just to give you an idea, I've given you some information over the last few weeks or few months about it, but I'm going to get real specific about what the Gnostics were doing, who they were, and what they were teaching. 
They taught, for example, the superiority of Eve in creation over Adam. Not that Adam and Eve were created, but that Eve was really what God wanted to create and Adam was just a cast off. Some people have taught the other way, which is wrong as well. But this is what the Gnostics were teaching. They taught that women, the Gnostics, should avoid marriage and childbearing at all costs. They had no respect or reverence for the sanctity of marriage. And as a part of their theology, they downplayed the idea of morality and they actually promoted sexual immorality. They actively, intentionally sought to seduce male leaders, both married and single, within the church under the guise of spirituality. It's called Gnostic feminism. You can look it up. It was a big problem in the first century church. A lot of these Gnostic leaders were, in fact, very talented, gifted, skilled women who came in with this horrible theology and were infiltrating the church. Jesus is not really God. He's not really uh, a, a, a heavenly being. He's a, he's a human. He just came here for a little while as an object lesson. He didn't have to die. Don't worry about sexual immorality. All that stuff is just something made up. The physical world doesn't matter. Marriage is a waste of time. Bearing children is a horrible time because we aren't really real beings anyway. It's all kind of a guise. It's sort of like what Christian science teaches. And remember, Paul had actually started these churches. John had took, took over for Paul once he was in prison and then died. And actually, Paul was very involved in fighting this Gnostic feminism as well. He warned Timothy. Timothy, by the way, was kind of like his apprentice, and he served this specific region when Paul was absent about the Gnostic feminists and the danger they posed in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 3 1 through 7, here's, what, here's how Paul describes the Gnostic feminists. Listen carefully. But understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. I wish you'd be more descriptive, Paul. <clears throat> Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. We see the strategy employed by the Gnostic feminists. And Paul calls it out in his letter to 2 Timothy. He says something else in 1 Timothy, <clears throat> and this is very interesting. I had to actually go to a different English version for you than the one I normally use because it actually mistranslates what's in the original Greek text. So here's what he says in 1 Timothy 4.7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Other versions say fairy tales or meaningless stories. Actually, the Greek words are old women's tales. Where we get the phrase, old wives' tales, Paul kind of coined it. He says, I want you to be aware of the fact <clears throat> that there are people out there <clears throat> peddling bad theology, godless myths, and he calls them, and he's referring to the Gnostic feminists, and I'll have more proof of you in a little bit, he calls them old wives' tales. See, John referenced some of these same things. He referenced a specific ringleader of Gnostic feminism, 
in, his, in, the, in the book of Revelation, he writes letters to the seven churches, and one of them is Theatria. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 2.20, John writes this. It's a specific letter to these churches, these the same churches he wrote 1 John to. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. He's not talking about the Old Testament Jezebel. A specific New Testament person. <clears throat> I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. See, in case you didn't think I was telling the truth. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This woman Jezebel was a ringleader in the Gnostic feminist movement. Both of these apostles, John and Paul, who are emotionally vested in these churches and the reason, are trying to deal with a well-organized, intentional, rogue group wreaking havoc in the first century church. <clears throat> this historical and theological understanding gives crucial insight into the unambiguous, direct, sometimes offensive words that Paul talks about when he speaks about the role of women in the first century church in Asia Minor. I believe many churches have taken these teachings and misapplied them because they don't understand the historical context of why and how they were written. Note that this was specific, I believe, to that ministry in that region, and Paul doesn't really address it in these terms in his other letters to other churches. And it's a big problem they're facing. They're facing a group of very skilled, talented women who are targeting people with horrible theology and teachings about immorality, and it's destroying the church. So that's the history and the spiritual, the theology part of what's going on. It kind of puts a lot of light on things, doesn't it? It helps you understand what's going on at the time and why these men are so passionate about dealing with this problem. So let's talk about the personal. A little bit better. I want to talk about celebrating election. It's very clear in the midst of all of this, battling Gnostic feminism and what they taught and how they were attacking marriage and how they were seducing people to practice immorality, as we see that in the verses before, all that stuff is there, accounted for in the scripture. It's very clear John had a special connection with this elect lady, as he calls her. Reminder, elect means called, chosen by God. I imagine as she got this letter, these words from John the Elder had to be warmly received and had a massive impact on her life. I mean, how would you feel if someone like John affirmed your faith and calling in that way, so personal, so direct? I bet she shared its contents with many people over the years. I bet she borrowed those words and rewrote words of notes of encouragement to other people that needed it. <clears throat> I'm going to give you an example of how somebody did that for me in my life when I was about 25. This is a this is actually my first pastor. His, his name is Al Cockrell, and this is his wife, Janie. I'm still close to him today. We talk. Um, I was about 25 when this story happens, right? I was a young man. I was in Bible college. I'm still struggling to find myself. Yes, I was obnoxious, immature. I lacked social gracious, nothing like I am today. <laughs> I knew God had saved me. 
And I knew God had called me to ministry, but I felt the burden of how far I still had to go. How much I had to learn, how much I needed to grow, how in, unprepared I was at that point for ministry. And sometimes I thought, man, I might not be available for God until I'm 40. So he's preaching a sermon one Sunday on encouragement and protecting one another and caring for one another. You know, and just like me, you know, I'm ADHD. I'm listening to some of it, and most of it's good, but some of it, I, my mind drifts. Well, if we had cell phones back then, and I'd have heard any sermons. I mean, I'd just been on that thing all. So, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm listening. But then all of a sudden, halfway through, he mentions my name. Out loud. In front of a church of 800 people. <clears throat> and he says, let me tell you why I'm bringing up Joe. Joey back then. Everybody called me Joey back then. Don't even think about it. <laughs> he begins to share evidences of what he saw as far as God's calling in my life over the last few years. I hadn't even, didn't even know he was watching, to be honest. And after he celebrated the fact that God had called me and saved me and given me a calling for ministry, he began to then teach the church how the enemy would want to discourage me and attack me and make it hard for me to fulfill that calling. Then he turned to the church and said, you will need to help Joe. He's one of us. He's got a calling. We will need to encourage him, correct him, equip him, protect him because he's worth the effort. Then he spoke directly to me. This is all like, you know, I'm like, what in the world is going on? Then he turned and said, now, Joe, I have some words for you. Intimate, personal words between you, me, and the other 799 people in this room. <laughs> he said, always stay true to the gospel. Never compromise its message. Never rely upon your giftedness, which you have, and your talents, because those are irrelevant without the message of hope and redemption through Christ and the cross. He did all this in the sermon in front of all these hundreds of people, and it was surreal, impactful. And transformative for me. What took me off guard was the boldness of it. And the unexpectedness of it. So as your first thought when you hear this man, I wish someone would do that for me. It would do worlds for me. We, 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 we actually as humans, let's be honest, we crave to be on the receiving end of that sometimes. We need to hear it. You're doing it right. It's okay. Keep going. I believe in you. But now looking back, when I remember that moment, I remember less and less about how it made me feel. And actually what it really did was teach me the importance of celebrating the election and calling of others around me. So I'm going to put a verse up. I just want you to look at this verse. <coughs> Let's read it. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul writes this in Hebrews. Here's why this little, tiny, insignificant book of 2 John is in the Bible. All through the Bible, God actually addresses individuals. And it's written there, in different circumstances and applications for our edification 
and encouragement. This is from God to you, from God to us. But church, if it stops there, we miss the whole point. The Bible is not your motivational speech booklet. This is what we need to do constantly for each other. <clears throat> and I'm not talking about a hang in there. You're doing all right. Well, I just want to encourage you. Keep going. I mean, that's cheap. I'm talking about taking the time to somebody you know, somebody you've watched, somebody you see and say, hey, listen, I want you to know something. I know you're elect. I know you're chosen. Here's why I see it in your life. I see it in how you raise your kids. I see it in how you work. I see it in how you treat others. I see this. I want you to know I see God's calling on you. And do it with some creativity, some passion like John did. I mean, John the elder is a busy guy looking after all those churches right in first, second, third, or first John with all those chapters. And then, by the way, this extra 15 verses send to this elect lady. I, I want to make sure she knows I know she might be a target from people who want to discourage her and take her down and keep her from being all that she's supposed to be for God's church. Give this to her. Make sure she knows she's special. Over the next few weeks, as we do this series called Just a Personal Note, I hope that it teaches us, it inspires us how to do personal notes to one another. We can do it through handwritten personal notes. We do it on social media, face-to-face -face conversations. Frankly, I don't care how you do it. I just know we should be looking to do it often with meaning. Not cheap keep-it-ups, but stuff that means something with content and depth. It should always be based upon actual, real evidence. It should be principled affirmation. Don't make it flattery. That's pointless. Principled, real affirmation. My hope is that our study of this personal note that John wrote to this elect lady is it will inspire us to love others in this way. We need to do this for each other. Frankly, this is what makes the fellowship of God's people so special and so different. We have more than just earthly, temporal reasons to encourage one another. Hey, I see you going on a eternal trajectory that is fantastic. I see evidence that God has called you. I see evidence that God is changing you. God is transforming you. God is making you important to me in my life and to others. Keep it up. The enemy doesn't like the fact that you're doing this. Don't be surprised when it gets tough. And if it does get tough, and if there's a way I can help, let me know. I'll be there. It's how we can show others what the grace life can actually taste like. What it feels like. When we take the time to celebrate the election and calling of our individual brothers and sisters that God has called out and chosen and put in our lives. 
Church, I believe that in the next few weeks, this personal note, this series called A Personal Note, if we can learn the habit that John shows us in this short book, the impact we will have on one another and our community could be massive. So while it's just 15 verses, don't underestimate how it's going to disrupt your life. I pray that it starts a new pattern of thinking of how we see one another and that we learn what principled affirmation and encouragement is all about. We'll be going through it the next few weeks. It should have this. It should have this. And we'll outline the things that are in a good note of principled affirmation. And my hope is that no matter what format you use, handwritten, text message, email, social media, face-to-face over coffee, whatever it is, I pray that we become experts in personal notes to one another. Heavenly Dad, please let us never underestimate how important it is to be an encouragement to one another. Lord, help us to learn with the skills you've given to each one of us how to be inspirational, transformative, just by speaking truth about what should be encouraged. Over the next few weeks, as we study 2 John, use it to transform how we interact with one another and give us new habits of being able to write personal notes that can change the trajectory of each other's lives.